Hey, we're, in, we're still in the book of Matthew. And if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 through 42. Please stand as we read the Word of God together. Conflicts versus rewards. Conflicts versus rewards. Now remember, Jesus is sending the, his disciples out two by two. They're going to be coming in contact with an evil world, a godless world. He's prepping them all through chapter 2. We'll learn the final prep talk today as conflicts versus rewards. Let's pick it up in verse 34. Do not think that I come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives me receives re, he, excuse me, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. This is the word of God. Be to God. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this time that you've given us to spend in the word of the living God. Holy Spirit, as always, speak to our hearts things that you want us to learn and help us to take what we learn into our world around us that we may impact this world as salt and light, ambassadors of the Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As you know, the theme of Matthew is Jesus is the promised king. We say this every week, so someday when you're wondering what the book of Matthew is about, Jesus is the promised king. He's coming back to reign as king of kings. Last week, we talked about do not fear them. Now, Jesus has actually been preparing these guys to go out two by two, like I said, since the beginning of chapter 10, which we've been in several weeks. He's empowered them for mission. He's empowered them. He's given them his power, his exousia power over unclean spirits, sickness, and disease. He's also told them to minister to a specific group of people, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's who he's to minister to, not to the Gentiles, not to the Romans, not to the Samaritans, to the Jews. Remember, the message went to the Jews first, and this is an offer of the kingdom to the Jewish people. He gave them a message to preach, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Their mission, if they were not accepted, was to depart, shake the dust off your feet, and go to somebody else that God has prepared to speak to. He instructed them on their mission to be wise as serpents, as innocent as doves in verse 16. And then he warns them that you will not be like disciples. The religious people are going to not like you. The government's not going to like you. Your family's not going to like you. He's preparing them for what to expect when they go out into the world. And then he says, by the way, it's going to get hairy out there. It's going to get scary and hairy. And they might even want to kill you. And he says, do not fear them. Do not fear them who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. That would be God himself. Jesus has prepared his men. And he's told them, specifically warning them to confess. If you do not confess me before men, I will not confess you before my Father who is in heaven. If you deny me before men... I will deny you before my Father, which is in heaven. He's leaving them with this imprinted on their brain as they go out and face this world. Continue on your mission, no matter what obstacles come in your way. We talked last week about the 21 Coptic Christians who gave their lives for Christ. How did they do that? How did the disciples give their lives? How in the world do we do that today? You shall receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You will receive power. That's how you do it. It will not be you. It will be God's Spirit within you allowing you to stand. Now, he's prepared them for this daunting task. And remember, they're going into a Roman-controlled world where Caesar is king. 
Caesar is God. You know, in Rome, they would allow you to worship any of the gods that you wanted to worship as long as you put Caesar first. And that's what put the Christians in opposition to Rome and Caesar. And that's why so many died, because the Christians could not and would not do this, at least the majority, at least the majority. So they're going to have all these conflicts. And again, they're doing this in the power of Jesus. Now, something incredible happened at Pentecost when the power of the Holy Spirit came on the whole church, as I said in, in Acts 1.8, and gave them the power to face the fears that lie before them. And last week, I had, a, had an overhead here of courage. And I just wanted to remind you what courage is and, and fear and faith. So this first slide is just going to be a reminder. However, this is a little bit different. This is what Franklin Delano Roosevelt said. Courage is not the absence of fear. And remember, every human being must deal with fear. It came in at the fall of man. It's, a, it's our nemesis. Every human has a fear of something. And remember, most people have a fear of speaking publicly. But there's a whole lot of people that have other phobia. Remember what it was? Arachnophobia. Fear of spiders. One-third of women, one-fourth of men. And I still didn't put a big old hairy spider up here just to save you that. Yes. So anyway, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is more important than fear. I thought that was good. And remember, whenever you're facing a fear object, you want to keep your eyes glued on Jesus. And the next slide is going to just talk about fear and faith. I just want to just indelibly imprint this into our minds. Fear and faith cannot exist in our hearts at the same time. Fear and faith cannot exist in our hearts at the same time. Neil Anderson's had this quote, and so many others have a very similar quote to this. But if you are focused on God, you will not focus on your fear. So try to remember that when you get into a tremulous type of situation. So these guys are being trained for their mission. They're ready to go. And folks, it's getting down to the nitty-gritty. I mean, you've been prepped. The minute mission has been told to you. The choppers are out there waiting. The disciples are ready to take off. They're going to land someplace, and they're going to engage their culture. And inevitably, there's going to be conflicts, conflicts, and conflicts. And the question is, will you be faithful on your mission? And that remains to be seen for each one of us. So conflicts versus rewards. Here we go. Are you ready? Are you set? Let's take off. Verse 34 through 37. Again, he's going to address conflict in families. And there's going to be worldviews that are going to be coming in oppositions. They're going to collide. Even within the closest units that you have, the family. Watch what Jesus says. And this is the second time. He said it earlier in, this, in chapter 10. Do not think that I come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, division. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Different views of who Jesus is. And a man's enemy will be those of his own household. And then he makes this statement. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, is not fit for me. These are strong words. Now, I want to just, did you catch these beginning words? I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Focus on that word sword for just a second. The word is mashariah, mashariah, and it's actually a knife, a knife-wielding person. The root word is mache, mache, and it means a battle, a controversy, a war. The name of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus Christ will bring conflict, battles, war between even the most intimate of relationships, family members. He's warning them ahead of time. Now, the question I want to ask you is this. I thought that Jesus was the Prince of Peace. Why all this war talk? Why all this combat talk? Well, there's a couple Christmas verses that we can go to to help explain this. We have the first one coming up right now. For unto us a child is born, Isaiah 9, 6. Unto us a son is given. The giving God gave his son, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called. Now watch these incredible words. Wonderful. Counselor. 
Jesus Christ, mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, that is one verse that we go over every Christmas season. And it's a, it's a beautiful verse. The Prince of Peace has come. And there's another slide that I'm going to show you that the angels will be, will be revealing to the shepherds on the hillside the birth of Messiah. And in doing so, they just cannot hold back their praise. And they say, you've seen this one many times, glory to God in the highest. They just start crying out. And on earth, peace, 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 goodwill toward men. So this is why Jesus came in the world. Now, now there's, there's, a, there's a difference here. Peace on earth and goodwill toward men speaks of God bringing peace between God and man. Jesus as our mediator. But he's going to cause problems between man and man as he comes into the world. That's the difference. That's the difference. This, this, this sword that he brings in is this sudden hurling of a sword and when you expect peace, this sword comes in and causes division. Scripture makes this crystal clear. Everybody in this room, I think, knows this. And if you don't know it, we inculcate, teach by repetition, in nauseam, by the way, over and over and over, that you were born into this world lost, dead in your trespasses and skins. Skins. Well, you're in your skins, but <laughs> sins. You're, you're, you're dead. Your spirit was born dead, separated from God, hopeless. You were in Satan's camp, and you were viewed at that time as an enemy of God. Now, God loves people, but your sin has caused enmity between God and man, okay? Just keep that concept in mind. Now, Romans chapter 5, verse 8 through 11, this won't be on the screen, so please listen, please listen. Watch what Paul says. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's verse 8. Verse 9 says this, having been justified by his blood. Now, you're all very biblically astute folks. You know that justification is just the imputed righteousness of Christ given to the believer the second they say yes to Jesus Christ. God looks at you as he looks at his son, pure and holy and clean. That's justification. So, having been justified by his blood, his death on the cross, we shall be saved from wrath through him. That wrath is the word orge, and it is punishment, anger. And now remember this, for believers, all of God's wrath that I deserved was poured out on whom? Let's try that again with a little gusto. You had the right answer. So, all of God's wrath was poured out of was poured out on whom? Jesus. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Isaiah puts it clear in Isaiah 53. Thank you for participating. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That word bruise means to crush, to break in pieces. It pleased the Father to crush his son. Why? For us, that he would take our sin debt. He shall bear their iniquities, in verse 11. He was numbered with the transgressors. This is talking about Jesus, Messiah. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, in Romans 5.10, it goes on to say these words. Watch what he says. For if when we were enemies, now this word enemies is ekthros. This is not tricky Greek. This is an enemy of God. This is someone that is not at peace with God, an adversary of God, a foe of God. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, brought back in the right relationship to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Jesus is alive, folks. Jesus is risen from the dead, victorious over the grave, because I live, you too may live. That is what Jesus promised us. So that word reconciled is this. This is another technical word that I believe we should all be familiar with. So it comes up on a slide. The meaning of reconciliation means the fixing of a broken relationship due to hostilities. Now remember that hostility came in the Garden of Eden when sin came in and death through sin and death passed upon all men because all have sinned. 
So due to hostilities by one or both parties, this is a significant New Testament salvation term. Christians were at one time at war with God. Now, because of reconciliation, we currently enjoy peace, shalom with our Creator, this full well-being with our Creator. Reconciliation brought back into right relationship. Now, I always like to emphasize this point. Only Jesus Christ can bring you into right relationship with God. No other world system, no other way of thinking, no positive thinking, no Oprah philosophy. Will, you know, she believes in multiple ways to God. No, Jesus said he's the only way. There is one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. There is one messy taste, one go-between that binds us with our God. One, not multiples. Jesus said he did not come to bring peace but a sword but division. Jesus' teaching would divide families. Let me say that again. Jesus' teaching will divide families. Conflict, conflict with those not reconciled. And this division is most noted in a person's worldview. Now, what is a worldview? A worldview is the lens on which you view your world. I have two pictures that will come up here. This is just giving you the lens. Indelibly imprint this on your mind. Every human being has a worldview, how they view their world. And now the concentric circles here will help us. A worldview is what is real to that person. Now, it doesn't mean it's a true worldview because multiple people have a very false worldview. But you develop your worldview by what you're taught. You decide what is true, what is good, and, and then your body or your, your actions will carry out what your worldview is. Your beliefs, values, and behaviors will ultimately, ultimately come forth from whatever your worldview is. Now, Brandon House, in his book, Religious Trojan Horse, defines worldview this way. Now, please hear this. Again, he says, the lens in which you view your world, it is the foundation of values that determines how a person acts, how they live out his or her life. Whether conscious of it or not, every person has a worldview. A worldview answers such questions as these. Where did we come from? Why are we here? What happens after we die? What in the world am I to do while I am here? Okay, that is what a worldview is. Now, again, your worldview is determined by what you've been taught. And what we see in our culture today is a mass effort to teach people a worldview that is contrary to God, to God's worldview, the biblical worldview. So our culture, education, media, arts, government are actively engaged in shaping our worldview, a secular humanistic worldview. Now, what do you have constantly being pummeled on you, constantly being promoted on your psyche, climate change. Now, folks, there is really, I mean, the science, the science, the science is questionable about, about climate change. Folks, climate does change over time. It vacillates all over the place. But to say that the earth is dying and have a panic attack like Greta Thunberg, little Swedish girl, I mean, this is not reasonable. This is not reasonable. The world is not going to end because of climate change. The world ends God's way. You see, there's a conflict in world's views. How about that, that humanity, in order to save the planet, must work together towards globalism? And you have the World Economic Forum. These people think they're altruistic. They're, they're working on behalf of humanity. By the way, their, their plan to save the world includes eliminating most people on earth so that you have about 500 million people left that are going to be the utopians on earth. That doesn't sound so hot to me. And then this struggle for immortality. Folks, I want to summarize this. There's, there's a volitional effort in our country to displace God, to displace God, to humanize the culture that extols mankind and ignores the true God. Now, I'm going to give you a summary statement of, of what a worldview is. Your doctrine or whatever you have been taught and that you take in as truth okay, determines your worldview. 
Because you can go to university, and I hope that what you're taught in the university, that it's the stuff that is contrary to the Word of God, you are not taking that in and accepting that as your new worldview. Just because some hotshot professor says something doesn't mean it's true. So your doctrine or your teaching determines worldview. Whatever worldview you adopt, adopt will, will determine your values, will determine your values. And then your value will be determine your conduct. Now, look at what has been produced by a secular worldview today. Just some things to think about, to think about. Look at the lawlessness in our streets. That comes from a worldview being taught to people. Those anarchists running through the streets have been taught by professors to act in that manner, to overthrow the system, to burn the system down. You've heard this before. That's a strategy. That's a Marxist strategy. Lawlessness, the all-about-me life, this, this worldview that's devoid of God. Now, one of the things that I think that has really been detrimental to our culture, this is kind of a side note, doesn't really flow really well with this, but I think I'm going to squeeze it in here, is that in 2007, a seminal moment happened in our country. That was when the iPhone was introduced to the populace. And when the iPhone got in everybody's hands, something happened. The indoctrination started full speed ahead. And since that time in 2007, the increase in psychosis in the younger generation has increased precipitously. It has just gone up and up and up. It has, it has just gone skyrocketed. What has happened concomitant with that is the change in the way marijuana is produced. Now, I'm going to bust on marijuana here just a second, so if you're a pot smoker, check in. Don't check out. Check in. Don't check out. I want to suggest something to you. What people are smoking today is not the hippie weed in the 60s and 70s and 80s. This is not the same stuff. It is very different. The New York Times which, by the way, is a liberal paper, had this article in it. Psychosis, addiction, chronic vomiting, as weed becomes more potent, teens, teens are getting sick. With the THC levels approaching 100% today, cannabis products are making teenagers highly dependent. It's addictive at this level. And dangerously ill. And then they go on to say this. In 1995, the average concentration of THC was about 4%. By 2017, it increased to 17%. And now cannabis manufacturers, with their ad schemes, are selling a product of oils, edibles, wax, sugar-sized crystals, glass-like vaped products, and have advertised THC levels very proudly at 95%. Now, what has happened from this? There have actually been studies done on this. There's a lady named Patricia Conrad, PhD in psychiatry at the University of Montreal, published an article. And she says this, the effect was, she says this, a large study of teens shows that adolescent, in adolescents, cannabis is harmful with respect to psychosis risk. The effect was seen in everyone in the study, says Conrad, not just teens with a family history of schizophrenia or bipolar, that sort of thing. The whole population is prone to have this risk because of the level of THC in the product. Adolescents, now listen to this one, who, who, who switch from occasional use of marijuana to weekly or daily cannabis consumption increase their risk of psychosis by 159%. Now, we have in our country today people that are very angry because the federal government has not deregulized marijuana use. And Joe Biden, to his credit, is resisting this. You have several senators, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, AOC, want to deregulate this. There's, there's also some Republicans thrown in there. This is not just a one-party thing, but a very majority of the Democrats want to do this. Our world says this, bring it on, legalize it. 
and our people suffer, and families have to deal with the psychosis fallout. But you know what our culture does? The culture doesn't care about the family. The culture doesn't care about the family. The nuclear family, as God ordained it, is under assault. Now, what is the nuclear family as God has ordained it? It is what the Bible talks about. One man, one woman, you get the two, one man, one woman for life. That is what the Bible teaches. They raise children and they train the children under the cover of God, under the hoopah of God. That is what the nuclear family was designed to do. So we've had many things coming into our world that is shaping our worldview. iPhones, drug utilization. We have technology, that sort of thing. Worlds, folks, are colliding. Like never before in this country, they're colliding. All over the world, this is actually happening. Worlds are colliding. Those not in God's kingdom, this should come up on the screen, call evil good and good evil even within families. We are divided over Roe v. Wade, the abortion, race, homosexual acceptance as normal, drugs, the whole thing. Now, Roe v. Wade is going to be fought at the state level, and I would ask you to pray for Governor Whitmer to become a Christian and to see life for what it is. Please do that. We're trying to, they're trying to divide us over race, and I've mentioned this many times. Folks, I believe that we are one race of humanity, that God is not a face looker. God is a heart looker. We are made in the imago Dei, the image of God, the image of God. Godless Marxism has raised its ugly head in America, attempting to divide. Now, heretofore, they have divided over class, rich and poor, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Those haves and haves nots. Get them to fight with one another. And then Marxism comes in and offers a great peace, and we're going to split the pie, and everybody's going to benefit. You know how many people have died under Marxist regimes? A hundred million people have estimated they'd be killed under Marxist regimes who did not Marx watch march lockstep with the state, where the state is God. Homosexual acceptance has divided families. And folks, this happens regularly. And I've known pastors who have had their children come home and say, I'm gay. And then they start to change their theology to accommodate that belief. Now, what the culture has done with homosexuality is to criminalize, basically criminalize us, calling us bigots, intolerant, haters, because we simply do not view their, their, we don't take on their view, we see the world from a different worldview, from a biblical worldview. Because we disagree does not mean at all, even in a minimum of all, that we hate homosexual people. That would be a lie that they are perpetrating. That is wrong. But we cannot accept legalization and, and, and full-blown acceptance of something that God calls sin. We cannot. We have to say, we cannot agree with that. And the best thing that you can do, the greatest love that you can ever give anyone is to tell them the truth. When you lie to somebody, and I like what Jason says, when you're patting them on the head on their way to hell, that is the worst hate that you could do for somebody, affirming their life on their way to hell. The greatest love you can give them is say, please, this is what God says. You cannot on sin sin by just saying something over and over and over, having sitcom after sitcom after sitcom extolling this lifestyle. You cannot do that and validate that lifestyle to a Christian. I don't care how many will and graces they have out there. I, I am not going to be changed in my opinion because this is what God says, this is what his word says. I cannot change from it. I cannot. And I want you to think about this. We are all, we, so it goes on the screen so I don't mess M up. What we must all realize is this. We are all sinners in need of Jesus. Oh, oh, that's, that's good. That's a good amen. That's an appropriate amen. God loves the homosexual, the abortionist, 
The poor women that have endured abortion, he loves them. The adulterer, the sexually immoral, the murderer, the thief, the gossip, the glutton, the lust, the jealousy, the vanity, the greed, you go on and on. Okay? He loves people. But folks, we must realize that sin is sin in the eyes of God. We must realize that. We're all in the same boat. We're in the sin boat on the way to hell boat. We all need a Savior to save us, every one of us. There's no one that's, that's sinless. And by the way, when you're saved, you're still sinning. Just thankful that that's under the blood. God, when God says something is sin, it is sin. Mankind, no matter how clever or how they try to twist things, cannot unsin sin. Try typing that into the computer. It doesn't work. I mean, on sin, sin. Our postmodern culture wants to normalize sin. We cannot pretend sin is not sin. For true Christians, this is a settled issue. Christ or culture. Christos is kurios. Christ is Lord. You know what kurios is? Master, ruler, owner. Not government, not media. Not the indoctrinations, not the university professor, no sir, not senators, and not even presidents. Christos is kurios. He is the one that we follow. Now can you see why Jesus said, Think not that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. Now take a breath. Allow me to take a breath. Those who compromise truth for family peace, Jesus warns in verse 37. Watch his warning. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What a statement. For those who want to have peace in the family at any cost, who change their worldview to go along, to get along with these changes in our culture, Spurgeon has a word for you. Charles Spurgeon has a quote that seems appropriate for our times. And it'll come up on the screen. It says this, To pursue union at the expense of truth is treason to the Lord Jesus. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? Conflicts will happen in families, folks. Worldviews will collide. Christos or culture? You have to decide. You have to decide. For us, hopefully for us, in verse 38 and 39, determined, determined, determined in our souls, take up your cross and follow the Master. Follow the master, verse 38 and 39. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Let that verse just sink in just for a second. Let me say it again. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. If you're not following the master, taking up your cross, dying to yourself, you're not worthy of the master. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Watch what he says here. First of all, what does take up his cross and follow me really, really mean? This is personal. Everyone takes up their own cross. You cannot take up somebody else's cross. You cannot take up your kid's cross for them. You cannot take up your mom and dad's cross for them. You take up your own cross. This is personal between you and God. That's how it always is. Salvation is personal, and your walk with him is personal. The cross is a symbol of death. Taking up your cross daily is an invitation to die to my will and my way daily. Luke adds in his, in his version in 9.23, take up your cross daily. And I might say moment by moment and follow him. To put to death the desires of your soul. You know what your soul is? Most of you know it. Your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions. 
Now, we are a tripart being. On the screen will come a picture of who we are as a tripart being. We are body, soul, and spirit. Again, your spirit is born. You're coming to this world with a dead spirit. But when you're born again, you get the lingo? Born again, your spirit is given life. Your soul has not been purified. Folks, this, this dude right here does not get purified until we are in the glorified state, until we are in the state of perfection. Here we will struggle with our thoughts, feelings, emotion. This is the area of battle where 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 and 4 says, take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Who wins the battle of the mind determines how the body or your, your, your being carries out the dictates of the soul. So if this is, you make faith choices, you're going to make godly decisions, you're going to live for Christ. If you make flesh choices, you're going to live for this world, the flesh and the devil. And this is a constant battle with, your, with the soul, with, thought, with your thoughts. Now remember you have five senses. Your sight, your hearing, your smell, your taste, your touch. All of these input into your soul. So be very careful what you hear. Very careful what you see. Be very careful what you allow into your soul. Guard those areas that input into your soul. Take up your cross to the death is a, is a take your cross up to the death of the self-life and follow Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says this, For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Folks, we are not our own. We are not our own. When we said yes to Jesus, he purchased us on the cross with his life. And we belong to him. And we are to live our life according to his precepts and his ways, not our way. If need be, we follow even to the death, the physical death. He who finds me, excuse me, he who finds his life will lose it. That's talking about the self-life. That's the do-it-my-way life. I did it my way thing. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. He's talking about eternal life. You've died for the faith. That's what he's talking about here. Now, I have a question for you. Why all of this death and misery talk? I'm wondering the same thing. I'm stiff struggle. Jesus is telling us the truth on what to expect from a world system under Satan's control. He's already warned them they will be scourged, delivered up by family members, hated for his namesake, persecuted, they flee from city to city in verse 22. He says, do not fear those who kill the body in verse 28. Confess and do not deny him in verse 32 through 33. The sword dividing the family. Take up your cross. Lose your life for my sake. These guys are going out two by two into an evil world. Jesus is telling them the truth. He's not telling him you're going out there and, oh, this is going to be your best life now. This is going to be great. They're all going to love to hear from you. They're going to all just love to hear from you. No, no. This is hard stuff. What we are going through here is hard stuff. This is not, let me tell you honestly, this would be a section of Scripture that I would not be going to if I was doing topicals. Matter of fact, a lot of Jesus' teaching are tough teachings. This isn't your rosy stuff. This is hard stuff. This is not American church stuff. This is not fairy tale Christianity. This is not make-believe. You won't hear this, folks, in most seeker-friendly churches, emergent churches, or progressive churches, what they call progressive churches. Folks, those churches want to teach you your best life now. Everything is peachy keen, totally devoid of reality, because people actually live here and experience real life here. This utopia preaching is false teaching, folks. This is the real deal. Now, I always like to take a little break, take a cleansing breath, take a break. Relief is just a swallow away. For most of you, you won't realize this. I've mentioned this before, but it's the Elka-Seltzer thing. 
Remember, down, 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 the stomach through. Round, 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 the system too. With Alka-Seltzer, you'll always say, relief is just, boom, a swallow away. See what you missed in the 50s and 60s. Yes. Yeah. I didn't know if I was going to say that or not, but hey, it came out. <laughs> oh, what a relief it is. Yeah, okay. What is your relief? Our relief is this. Jesus will be with you through it all. That is our relief. Jesus is with us through the fire. And we know in Scripture, several times it says, Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. And in the Greek, that's five nevers. Never, 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 never leave you nor forsake you. And then Jesus will get you home safely. Jude, verse 24, says this. And it'll come up on the screen. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling. That's a falling away. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Folks, determine. Determine. Take up your cross and follow the master. Follow the master. Relief and rewards. Verse 40 and 42. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of the prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones, that would be believers that are hearing the word, a cup of water in the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Now, when you're talking about the disciples going out two by two, and we know that they're going to have conflicts. We know that there will eventually be relief and we will have rewards in the future. But in the interim, don't you want someone to just tell you the truth? Just, it's so refreshing to have someone just tell you the truth. When you go to the doctor, it's just tell me the truth, doc. Just tell me the truth. Tell me the truth, mom and dad. Tell me the truth. University professor extolling Marxism, tell me the truth. Tell me the truth, what that life actually produces. And by all means, Dr. Fauci, tell us the truth. Tell us the truth. <laughs> President Biden, tell us the truth. But how about this one? Pastor, tell us the truth. Tell us the truth. People can deal with the truth, even if it's bad news over a lie that promises and promises and delivers nothing. Jesus will always tell you the truth. Let me say that again. Jesus will always tell you the truth. And what truth is that? There are rewards awaiting those who follow the master. Follow the master. Those with ears to hear, eyes to see, will receive abundantly. He talks about a prophet's reward, a righteous man's reward, a servant's reward. And think about this. The smallest thing done for Christ will be rewarded abundantly. The smallest thing that we do will be richly rewarded. When kingdoms collide, and they do, and they are more and more, gain solace, gain peace, Gain perspective, hear the words of Jesus in John 12, 26. If anyone serves me, now it's going to cost you to serve Jesus. Just, just write this, put that right down. That's automatic. Anyone who serves me, let him follow me. What does that actually mean, follow me? You're actually doing what he said to do. You're following what the master has taught. You're not just hearing it and saying, okay, I'm saved, and live any way that you want. He's really big on following me. And where I am, there my servant, who's following, will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, watch this, will honor. Will honor. If anybody follows and serves Jesus, Jesus will honor you. Watch, the father will honor you. Honor is the word timio comes from the word timios. It means to revere, venerate, honor, value, precious. Now think about this. 
precious, very precious, on your arrival in heaven, very precious to God. You are honored by God as you arrive into heaven. Psalm 116.15 says this, precious, precious, yakar in the, in the Hebrew, timios in the Greek, revered, honored, highly esteemed, precious, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious. Anytime you go to a Christian funeral, just remember, you're grieving and it's precious to God. As you enter into the presence of God and you're hearing, the, and I, 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 I don't know if this is going to happen. This is just a makeup thing by me. But it's like you're running the marathon and you're coming into the stadium and you hear the cloud applauding. This abundant entrance, Peter says, will be given to you as you come into the kingdom of God. The applause of heaven is almost like you can hear it. Precious in the sight of God is the death of one of the saints. Dear, in closing, Scripture could not be clearer about this conflict thing and rewards. Conflicts will happen as worldviews collide. Just mark it down. Your loyalty to our Savior will be tested in this world. Now, heretofore, living in America, that wasn't so much. You had to deal with some things, but it is really, really, really ramping up as our country changes. In our world of conflicting worldviews, there is hope. And know this truth, in a world of despair, in a world that is unfair, in a world that is scary, there is hope. And what is hope? The definition will come up on the screen. The earnest expectation that something good is going to happen. Look it up in Zadiati's Greek. That's exactly what it means. The earnest expectation that something good is going to happen. Now, what that tells me, I don't care what something looks like, sounds like, smells like, I am going to walk through this thing with my Lord having hope. 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 We are a people of hope. Not pretend pie in the sky hope. Real hope. Romans 15, 13 puts it this way. May the God of hope fill you, fill you with joy and peace as you trust in him. That's how your that's where your hope comes from. As you trust in him, that you may overflow, overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me expound on this just a little bit. Overflowing hope is super abounding hope. Super abounding hope. It's just, it, when you're hoping in this manner, it's very different than, gosh, I hope it gets better. No, I have a hope that this is going to get better. Only believers have super abounding hope. Only believers have the power of the Holy Spirit within them Hope is hope in impossible situations. And by the way, hope and power go together by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will give you power, super abundant power to be an overcomer. We also can expect this, over-the-top rewards. Now, I think that's a good thing. Rewards. Now, we're going to all appear before the Bema Seat of Christ. And I think the sequence of events is this way. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, we will be caught up to meet our Lord in the air. That is the rapture of the church. The first thing on the agenda of the rapture, I believe, is the Bema Seat judgment where you receive rewards or loss of rewards for what you've done for Christ after salvation. So rewards for works we have done for Christ after salvation, that is the Bema Seat. And I've mentioned the Bema Seat judgment many times to save you. I just not going to talk about it any more than that right now. But rewards is the word mythos. And it does mean this, wages paid, actual, tangible reward. Ephesians 2.10 says this, and by the way, Ephesians 2.10 follows verses 8 and 9. If 
By grace you're saved through faith, not of yourselves, as a gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. And then he goes on to say, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're created. We are to do good works after salvation. We're not saved by works. You don't ingratiate yourself to God by doing works. He's going to love you as much as he's ever going to love you the moment you say yes to Jesus. We must understand that. We do good works because we love the master. That he sacrificed so much for us, I willingly desire to work for him. To work for him. As previously stated, God is an incredible rewarder. Allow your mind for just a moment to bathe in the majesty of God. Just for a moment. And ponder the following words of Scripture. Romans 11, 33 through 36. This is a doxology. Doxology. Doxa, glory, and honor, and esteem. Logia, an oral expression. Doxology. Glory, spoken about our God. Watch what Paul says. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments. His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory, the doxa, forever and ever. Amen. Folks, to God be the glory. When worlds collide, just remember, God is to be glorified.